Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Today we're bringing you episode two of our deep dive into the people behind the journal, our Heredity editors. Last time we heard from Alison Bentley a crop specialist focused on plant breeding. And today we're sticking with the plant mating theme as we talk to Dr. Mark Sift, though his research focus is pretty different to Allison's, as you'll soon discover. This episode is also special, as I was able to record it live and in person right after the Heredity editorial board meeting in November, which was held at the University of Glasgow's field station on the stunning banks of Loch Lomond. So, after some intense journal chat, a walk in the hills and dinner, Mark and I sat down to discuss what makes him scientifically tick. Here it is. Hi Mark, welcome to the Reddit Podcast. Can you just tell the people listening who you are? Um, yes, my name is Mark Stift. I'm uh, based in the University of Constance. I'm a plant evolutionary biologist, mainly interested in mating system evolution. Um, so I think I've been with Heredity for three years. I'm not entirely sure how long exactly. So um, it's actually kind of funny for me because I have actually heard your name floating around for a number of years because I did my PhD in the same lab mm-hmm. as Editor-in-Chief Barbara Mabel. And of course, you did a postdoc with her before I started in that lab. What was it like working with her? Ah, um, yeah. So Barbara is a very organized, kind, calm person. Uh, I'm a person who can, I like to make a joke every now and then. And I think, uh, yeah, we, we got along well, I think, due to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, so it is really nice to actually finally meet you and not just hear your name. And it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about the research that you actually work on. Yeah, so I said I work on mating system evolution. More specifically, I work on the evolution of selfing. So um, I work on a system that I sort of inherited a little bit from from Barbara. I guess it, <laughs> the pun was not intended there. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so so the the loss of self incompatibility and that can but doesn't have to lead to self fertilization. And I'm interested in this transition because it's sort of a it's sort of a conundrum, let's say. On the one hand, selfing is on the short term advantageous, yet on the long term, uh, the general idea is that um, sex and recombination and um, achieving that through outcrossing, that it's beneficial for adaptive capacity. No, I mean, it is is a really incredibly interesting topic and it's very, very broad. So what is it that you are specifically sort of focused in on? Yeah, so uh, over the past years, I've looked at flower morphology, so that might not be so genetic yet. But the last um, topic was basically to try to um, design crossing experiments to get to the genetic basis of the loss of self-incompatibility. Nice. And you, as well as being an editor here, you have published in the journal and you had one out quite recently, I think, on Arabidopsis. Uh, yeah, so I actually had two out recently. Uh, oh, sorry, two. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no worries. Tell us about both. Um, yeah, so so that one um, was about inbreeding depression because that is one of the main main barriers to the evolution of selfing. It's difficult to estimate inbreeding depression, in fact, because ideally you'd want to do this out there in nature. Yet at the same time, then practically your experiment becomes quite complex. Um, so often people revert to greenhouse studies. And then the criticism is, well, this is not relevant for nature. (laughs) 
So we sort of found, tried to find a middle ground in which we imposed um, stresses that we think are relevant for these plants in nature. And in this case, the specific stress was intraspecific competition. So in essence, before we already knew that inbreeding depression was relatively low in this species. And the question is, okay, is that because we grew them under two beneficial conditions and we let outcrossed and self progeny from the same mothers, we let them compete with the idea that that might make the difference between outcrossed and self progeny, which effectively is inbreeding depression, um, make these differences larger. And this is relevant for nature because these plants, they don't have any adaptations for seed dispersal. So you would expect that the seeds fall close to the mother plant and that there would be intense competition between siblings and between outcrossed and self siblings, particularly, which could magnify then inbreeding depression. So that was the topic of the paper you re referred to. And is that sort of similar stuff you covered in the other one? Or is no, not at all. That's completely different. Um, I did my PhD on... on um, yeah, the evolution of polyploidy, and particularly autopolyploidy. And that's and essentially it's, just genome duplications. It's genome um, duplications within species. So you have two types. You can have hybridization, then you get allopolyploids, um, where you could say that they are simply behaving almost as diploids because they're, yeah, they're, they basically have two, two diploid genomes, and during meiosis and reproduction, they stay sort of separate. And in this particular paper, we actually looked at a slightly different scenario where you have, um, this happens a lot in plants. We looked at what happens if you have diploids and tetraploids within the same population, how then Bayesian structuring methods, how they perform given this very unusual type of data. And particularly, we had the feeling from test simulations that we had run um, that there could be artificial clustering of diploids with diploids and tetraploids with tetraploids. And this is relevant to, to try to find out the origin of the tetraploids, because a typical conclusion could be if all the diploids cluster together in such an analysis, and if all the tetraploids cluster together, then you might think, okay, then a simple single origin scenario would explain this pattern that you find. Whereas in reality, if, if this structuring, this, this clustering together of diploids and this clustering together of tetraploids is just an artifact of the fact that there are diploid and tetraploid, then that's a problem. So we investigated whether that indeed was a problem and, yeah, under, under certain conditions <laughs> that indeed turned out to be a problem and we compared different softwares um, and found that one of them, structure, actually was fairly robust. Which is good because it's a fairly ubiquitous... Exactly. I, I, I guess <laughs> a, a population genetic audience would appreciate that structure is quite a popular of the available Bayesian structuring algorithms, yes. Right. So I guess it's kind of clear why this is important from an evolutionary context when you're looking at these plants. But I wonder why this work is important to you specifically. Why is it that you choose to research this? Huh. Um, yeah, I, I, I think because both mating system evolution and polyploidy, a lot of our theory on genetics is based on diploids and on standard situations. And both of these cases, they're basically non-standard. You probably know the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. There's this assumption of random mating. Well, every student has struggled to learn it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And a lot of a lot of our knowledge is, or, or our theory is based on these principles. And selfing is a violation of this. And similarly, actually, polyploids and, and the way they inherit, they, they can actually violate these assumptions so that the methods that we tend to be able to use for diploids, they simply don't work. So the, I, I guess these two scenarios, they're all coming down in, in genetic terms at least to the same thing that they are non-standard situations that we don't know too much about 
yet that are hugely relevant for plant evolution because the evolution of selfing is extremely frequent and also in plants well more than half of them are probably polyploid so this is not just a trivial sort of rare case that we try to understand which is equally interesting but this is actually quite generally relevant i would say yeah, I, I do like the plants kind of break all of the rules that we've established with animals <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so i guess moving on to heredity more generally like we mentioned that you have published here a couple of times you have done so recently so what is it you particularly like about the journal I, th I think the key thing that i like is that it's a society-run journal so there's not a company here that profits from the hard work that reviewers authors and editors do to get papers published i mean there is there is a publisher that earns money of course and yet a large part of the profits actually go back to science through the genetic society and I like this concept that basically the, the money stays at least for some, to some extent yeah, yeah. In, in science and, and, and promotes science further. So that's what I like. I also like that it's a fairly, I'm not sure if it's always been the case, but at least the way Barbara is now running the journal, it's, it's a small group of editors. It's almost like a, like a small family. It's not massive, yet at the same time, there's a decent output of papers. So, so it's, it's, it's not that we have thousands of papers a year, but the papers that we do output, they are all, I think, of reasonable quality. Yeah, they are, they're all very interesting. And yeah, like obviously we are affiliated with Springer Nature, but GenSoc is the main beneficiary of yeah. heredity. And there are some very good links and, and cross projects there. And I guess it, it's kind of interesting because obviously you're an editor here and that is an awful lot of work. So I wonder what it is that you get out of being an editor here. Yeah, so I, I, I think to be fair, I mean, I'm... I'm I'm relatively junior in, in my career, I would say, and I, I think for junior researchers it's super important to get editorial experience. So personally, I've learned actually quite a lot from seeing why I as an editor actually reject or perhaps give major revisions to a certain paper. I, it's super interesting to see this from the other side. And I think I've learned a lot now in how I submit, even if I don't submit to heredity, I submit somewhere else. I think I'm now doing that differently because of the experience I get here. No, perfect. And that is actually genuinely really interesting because my next question was going to be asking about how you kind of go about it. So when a paper comes into you, what is it that you are looking for? Um, so I'm trying to, first of all, check if the paper is not very narrow in scope. So a trick that I do that works for me is to look at the end of the introduction, if there's a clear list of questions, and then maybe skim through the rest and then read the discussion thoroughly and test if or, or see for myself if I think these questions have been thoroughly answered. So at that point, I don't review it completely because a review, of course, you also have to look into the into detail into the methods. But there we have, I think, reviewers that also should provide an assessment. So that's one aspect that I value a lot, especially in deciding whether or not I send something out for review. Um, I, I like good structured writing in the sense that it's i think very important to have a good paragraph structure where each paragraph has some message of its own so that all the paragraphs together form a logical flow so it can sometimes be that the science is all in good shape and even there are good questions and the questions are answered but if you read it you sort of have to read each paragraph 10 times and yeah so that's something i also look for but that's normally not a reason for rejecting a paper I have personally once recommended that one be rejected because the paragraph structure and writing was so hard to follow. It was really hard to follow the science, which was actually yeah. really good. 
And I guess this kind of moves on to a, another question, which I didn't tell you about in advance, but I wonder if there are any papers that you've come across recently that you've been the editor for that you think are particularly notable. Um, any that mm. you've particularly liked, I think they sort of exemplify what Heredity is really looking for, and you're not allowed to pick your own. Ooh. <laughs> I was going to say that. No, no I, I didn't end my own papers for the record. <laughs> um, whew, that's a good question. And a tough one to uh, just, just <laughs> come up out of the blue with a paper like that. So um, th there is a paper that, that comes to mind where I found, like, it, it was a bit further from my own topic. It was about hybridization in, in lizards. I which... think we might have an episode on this. Okay. And... Uh, I, th I think the ideas there were, were, were great, and, and it looked like they were based on, on some sound theory. To me, I was a bit further off, so I, I really relied on the reviewers here for insight on whether the approaches uh, were there. And there was a, a lot of back and forth. I think there were three or four uh, revision rounds on that paper. But in the end, um, I, I, I was pretty happy with the result. I think I was picky on, on the way that the questions were formulated and, and, and the, the way the hypothesis was written. But in the end, I had a very good idea so so is this the hybrid origins of the asexual species yeah there was it was like this by um, Susanna Freitas yes exactly yeah yes. so we do have an episode on that so after people uh -huh. finish listening to this they should definitely go and read that one because it now okay. has editorial endorsement aha uh -huh. <laughs> um, no it is a very good paper and did really well on twitter and okay. when you actually yeah. read it yeah it's it's kind of a really good example of what heredity is aiming for because it is a really fascinating system but then it's a really broad theory base behind it so yeah, exactly. And I think the data is not necessarily conclusive, but I think it offers enough good data points to, you know, warrant slight speculation in, in the discussion. And I think it's in that sense, it's, yeah, some would call it maybe provocative, but I think it's it's the right mix of data-based. Um, Definitely yeah. sparks discussion. So the last thing I want to ask is that we're really trying to get a feel for what drives our editors as scientists, as people in their careers. So I wonder if there's anything that you are particularly passionate about promoting in your work or in your career more broadly. Um, as you know, we had the editorial meeting and we had long debates on impact factor um, and, and, of course... Another topic of discussion. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I think everybody is, you know, using impact factor as, as a prime decision maker for where to submit. And... I don't think I'm an advocate to abandon that, but I'm a, I'm I'm an advocate to also look at the reputation of journals and to ask older colleagues which journals they just off the top of their heads know have been around for a long time and are signals of good quality science. So I think I'm an advocate of publishing in society journals, not only heredity, but I think in general the the experience you get as an author from these journals it's much more personal and you can get much better and potentially also honest feedback and you're supporting sort of the scientific community by publishing so it's sort of it's circular but circular in a good way so i'm i'm, a, I'm sort of an advocate of that i think no i i agree i <laughs> often find that these style of papers you get a better story from it so it's a more enjoyable reading experience the science is communicated so much better yeah yeah and i think um, the impact factor doesn't measure the real impact that a paper has like some papers perhaps are used in education and you might have literature discussions and yeah, you can still learn something from it, but you won't necessarily cite that paper. So I, I, I think, sure, you need some sort of measure of what a good quality journal is, but I think there's more things than the impact factor. 
I think many people would agree. But yeah, so that is all I had to ask. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and sharing your research and your opinions of heredity. And yeah, hopefully people will now go and read the two papers that you recently published. Uh, yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> and cite them also. That would be even, more, even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you very much. It was fun, actually. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> hopefully you're feeling inspired by Mark to submit your papers to heredity. You can find out how to do that on our website nature.com forward slash hdy and if you want some inspiration you can read mark's own papers or you can read the one that he mentioned in the podcast this is called the role of hybridization in the origin and evolutionary persistence of vertebrate parthenogenesis a case study of dravescia lizards and we do have a podcast on this with the authors of the paper titled the hybrid origins of asexual species make sure you check them all out and it's been a while since we checked in with cat arnie over in genetics unzipped so let's take a sneak peek at what they're talking about in their latest episode It's become cheaper and easier than ever before to access genetic testing, and more and more people are having their genomes done for reasons of personal interest, health or ancestry. But what happens when an innocent genetic investigation reveals dark family secrets? In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we hear what happened when one family made an unexpected genetic discovery and discuss how best to engage and inform people about genetic testing and research so that they really know what they're getting into. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a really interesting one. And from the Twitter poll they ran beforehand, it's clearly a topic that raises serious concerns and strong opinions. So please do give it a listen. But for us, that's it today. Please subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on the platform of your choice. And give us a follow on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, please drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.